This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. In 2008, a podcast was created with one goal. To bring Bat fans around the world news related to movies, comics, video games, television, merchandise, and so much more. And now, the Batman Universe Podcast has returned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest TBU podcast. I'm Dustin. And today we have uh, another special interview that we've done uh, recently. Uh, Scott talked with author Travis Langley um, about his recently new edition of Batman Psychology. Before we get into that, I know you're probably wondering to yourself, wait, weren't we going to be doing the Snyder controversy this week? We were. Uh, due to some scheduling issues with some of the hosts, uh, we weren't able to actually get that discussion recorded just due to the fact that we wanted to try to get as many people as we could onto that recording. So we are still planning on doing it. I know it's been at least over a month at this point since that news broke, and it's not going to be timely when we eventually get to it, but we still want to discuss it and there hasn't really been any other major news that has recently popped up so for this week we're going to uh, listen to an interview that scott did with travis langley uh, his book batman psychology a dark and stormy night uh, first released back actually in june of 2012 right before the release of uh, the dark knight rises this was a book that at the time when it was released i was very interested in in it uh, to, to kind of dive into the mind of Batman and also some of the villains that surround Batman in his uh, adventures that take place in the comics and movies and television shows and all of that. Um, so this was a very interesting book. And at the time I read the book, uh, we were not as involved with doing interviews back then, uh, just because of time permitting and things like that and just stuff going on in my own personal life. Uh, so... But if you had the chance to read the book, Batman and Psychology, you can you can get very, very clearly that uh, Travis Langley is a very big Batman fan. He is very interested in dissecting kind of the characters and personalities of the characters that surround Batman as well as Batman himself. And he was always somebody that I thought would be a great guest for an interview. Um, and then it just so happened that, you know, obviously... Uh, 10 years has passed, and this past year, uh, when the Batman released, there was a new version of Langley's book that released that was called Batman Psychology, A Dark and Stormy Night, but it was a second edition, and the second edition had some revised ver revised elements within the book itself and also some updated information based off of some of the stuff that's happened in the last 10 years. So 
This book actually released back in March. Um, we were given a uh, review copy of the book to kind of take a look at and get a good idea of exactly what the book was about, the new version that is. And Scott sat down and actually read the entire book ahead of time to make sure that he had a good understanding of this new version. Um, and we were able to talk with Travis Langley. Uh, shortly after Comic-Con, uh, we, we were originally thinking about trying to set it up before Comic-Con, but just because of timing with Comic-Con, it just worked out where we were able to talk to him after Comic-Con was over. So this is the interview that took place. Uh, just as a quick editor's note, um, this interview did have a couple of hiccups with some internet connection. All of our interviews take place over the internet, generally through Zoom. Uh, that's why sometimes after the fact, we'll have video versions of the uncut uh, conversation available on YouTube. There was some audio issues as well as some of the, as well as an internet connection issue that causes a couple of things. You'll, you'll probably figure out exactly where they happen based off of the conversation, but just as give a forewarning, that is why some of those things has happened. So sit back and enjoy this interesting interview with Travis Langley, author of Batman and Psychology. This is Scott with the Batman Universe podcast, and today I have a very special episode for you. Joining me is Professor psychologist, author, and Batman fan, Dr. Travis Langley. Dr. Langley has offered 14 books on the psychology and analysis of human nature as relayed through the stories we all love. He's written psychology books on Game of Thrones, Star Trek, Doctor Who, The Walking Dead, Wonder Woman, and today's topic, Batman. This year, the second edition of Batman and Psychology, A Dark and Stormy Night Hit Shelves, and we're going to get into the psyche of our favorite Kate Crusader. To start things off, uh, did you go to Comic-Con this year? Yes. <clears throat> I've been going to Comic-Con, except during lockdown when they didn't meet in person. I've gone every year for the last 15 years. How was my it this year, year? My year ends and begins with San Diego Comic-Con. I mean, I've been on an academic calendar most of my life, so you kind of think of it that way anyway. But no, it's like now it's, it's a new year. It's all just building up to, to next summer. <laughs> Nice. Were there uh, any highlights for you this year? Seeing friends I hadn't seen in a while. I mean, that, that was that was for me the thing. Uh, it was uh, people say, "What what's, what celebrities are appearing there?" It's like I don't know. I don't go to Hall H. I, I do my panels. I go to some friends' panels. Um, the and uh, yeah, for the most part, it is about um, the after hours, hanging out with with friends that I haven't gotten to see in other places, or, and making new friends. The, the, the convene and convention is what that's about for me more than anything else. Nice. I like that. That's a, that's a new answer I've heard. And that's, a, I really appreciate that. Cause that's, you know, I used to go to like a totally different thing, but it was a writer's conference or AWP. And that was just like the conference itself was fine, but it was the after hours where you just like meet up and hang out with, you know, your friends from across the country or just, you know, swap the stories or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, you can have many wonderful experiences at the main stuff, especially like a writer's conference. You can pick up interesting tips throughout the days, hear interesting about things about people's experiences. And if you go to something like San Diego Comic-Con, you can choose an entire slate of panels along those lines to learn from. You know, or you can choose a slate of panels where it's about, ooh, what cool celebrity can I see? Because, you know, I'll, I'll admit, it, it is fun having a photograph of Bruce Willis that I took myself from way in the back of a San Diego <laughs> Comic-Con press room once upon a time. <laughs> um, 
Nice. Um, jumping into the book, you know, I want to start off like in the introduction, uh, Denny O'Neill offers, you know, offered high praise, you know, citing it as a pivotal book for, you know, an art form that I found interesting. He labeled as post-industrial mythology. Um, how do you feel about comic characters in general as a post-industrial mythology? I think there's a lot of truth to it. There is a degree to which the characters belong to the fans. Things get out in your consciousness. We have our ideas when fans will argue, Batman kills, Batman does not kill. It each has a, a different Batman in their head. We've got a myth. Of course, it's, it's myths by copyright and trademark. You know, these are myths that are owned by particular companies, but there is something out there in the popular psyche. There are things that somebody can try to add to the story that won't stick because they don't fit with, with what the myth is. There, there is this, there's this thing in the popular consciousness, you know, and Danny was a particularly good one about talking about that with uh, characters such as Batman, uh, one of the most famous characters in the world. And, People have these ideas and something about it speaks to people. You know, you can, how do you manufacture a myth in the modern age when people share information a different way? The old myths were shared orally, you know, passed down by people speaking them, telling them, and they would alter with the telling with these stories. Well, they're in print. And, and we can go back and look and see, you know, you want to argue about something from Batman's history. Well, there it still is in print. Um, but there are these other things to it. They, they, they resonate with us in such an important way that uh, some people who aren't fans of them don't even, they don't necessarily know what it is that speaks to us. And you can say that about something like Star Wars too. Why do fans argue about who shot first? And you know which scene I'm talking about. Yeah, and, definitely. And, 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 and to me, it's like, I, I wrote a whole chapter on, on why people are, argue about that one. But uh, I'm just using that as an example of it. There was something about whichever version spoke to the person that that was meaningful. And somebody else can edit the movie. It doesn't change the person's original feeling about it. You know, half the books I work on are about comic book characters because that's what's particularly interesting to me and the durability that they have in a way that a lot of these other stories don't have and the flexibility they have that uh, some of them don't. You know, if you have, if a new Harry Potter story is not written by J.K. Rowling or, or rubber stamp endorsed by it, which apparently the, the cursed child is, um, it's, it's not really Harry Potter. And but you can have your feelings about Harry Potter change because some things J.K. Rowling saying about people out there. It doesn't take away from what your original feelings were and why it spoke to you at that time. And so th these are these are things that let us think about the world and people while stepping aside from some of our existing biases and assumptions about the real world. So it's a good way to put it and something, you know, you know, when you're talking, you're talking about how, you know, it used to be an oral tradition and now it's, you know, it's in print. And it's interesting because it got me thinking, you know, when you're talking about that, you know, part of the, you know, one of the things that happens every, it seems like every five years now is there's always like a, a line wide, you know, event or change that kind of upsets the status quo a little bit. And like, 
you know, there are very obvious like business reasons to do that launching point for new readers, things like that. But also in a way it could serve to like free the character from time. And, and, you know, as we explore these characters and explore ourselves and, you know, what we feel or believe in, maybe that's, you know, in a, in a way to help adjust that character as, you know, they can do that. They can also reveal the things that nope, fans are still clinging to such and such thing before, you know, crisis number 89. Uh, And I don't mean year 89. I mean the 89th dead gum universe shaking crisis. Crisis, (laughs) crisis, crisis on infinite earth was, was groundbreaking and, and shook up the whole line and created a lot of opportunities for new stories to be told. Uh, But there were things that would keep creeping back in over time because people saw it's like some of these other elements that that we'd set aside are still part of what speak to people and and they have their value they have their place sometimes the silly stuff has to be there batman sometimes has a dog you know sometimes you know there 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 are these other colors of kryptonite there there are stories to tell with them even if you just want um we're going to have that be a non-canon story well you're still telling that gum story it, it is still a story, whether it's canon or not. It, it is out there for us. Thank Yeah, on that note, probably the most recent example I can think of is the new 52, the shift to it, and now the shift very yeah. much away from it. And they've then since then, they've done Doomsday Clock and a couple of other stories to keep trying to tweak those things. But yeah, with new 52, that when, when they restarted them all at number one, even Detective in Action, although those eventually went back to their original numbering and um, uh, but they, they reset for the whole line um the creators it, it was just sprung on them it was the you know, dan didio takes it to you know the board for approval and springs it like uh, kelly sudaconic was talking about how it's like she, she found out like one month oh the next issue of supergirl is going to be the last you know before it all gets reset and it was disheartening to them crisis on infinite earth they've been building up to this for two years all the different creators had time to flesh out their ideas so it was this collective activity that was exciting and invigorating to them as opposed to when it just gets inflicted upon the creators and you know it's like will will we see you know more things simply being inflicted upon creators for business decisions such as not releasing a 90 million dollar movie for reasons that are baffling um (laughs) we just talked about that last night on the pod that's coming out uh friday that's that's a baffling one but it, it it does the kind of one of the reasons stated for that ties into this though it was said that it what it didn't support the vision that the new folks in charge have for the dceu so it's like so they're taking away from the freedom to tell a story and they're i mean if you're playing in the big sandbox that all this does need to be in the same continuity clearly with marvel movies they've got a big old continuity and somebody that a story a filmmaker that wants to tell a story that messes up that continuity for everybody else that that's an issue um that happened with uh, the Ant-Man movie. There were some things he wanted to do that didn't fit what they were doing with that overall. But this was with the universe that was already being established and building and growing as opposed to one that has never exactly gotten off. Um, I th- personally thought it was more promising when they just 
letting them tell their own stories. The Batman does not have to be set in the same universe as the rest of it. The movie Joker does not have to be, they do not have to worry about where it ties into continuity. They had the freedom to tell, think of them as Elseworld stories or whatever, but they had the freedom to tell those stories in those films. And it seems like a lot of that freedom is being taken away to support a cinematic universe that has never really been developed. Yeah, no, it's a, a good point, though, you know, and just having these things, just telling their own stories. I was actually interviewing uh, Michael Uslin a week when, ago. When, 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 uh, you were talking to him when? About a week ago. Okay. And uh, he was... Because we I talked talk, to him the week before that. Yeah. And we, we were talking about, you know, just, you know, where it's at now, like on a on a production level, how you have all these different movies. Obviously, it's before the Batgirl news. But, you know, he, he was and talking... Michael about, is quiet about that. Yeah, that's one of that's, that's one of those things. You know, there 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 are people who are in positions where they've got to deal with uh, studios and others, and and sometimes the thing to pay attention to is what they don't comment on publicly. Yeah, true. You know, he was just you know at, at the time he was just saying you know now like you know years ago when Watchmen came out it seemed like people he was with they had a harder time understanding, you know, the, the time elements of that movie, but we now kind of live in an era where everyone's already used to the multiverse idea. And like yeah. people just kind of assume where the groundwork is already there for people to just understand that concept going into, you know, having these movies that aren't necessarily connected. And no, it wasn't that long ago. Michael was still talking about his excitement about Michael Keaton's return to um, the Batman role. And now Will we ever get? It's like we've got two movies, yeah, The Flash and Batgirl. That he's important in both of these, and and they're tied up for different reasons. You know, Warner wishes they'd gone ahead and released the Flash during lockdown instead of just postponing until uh, there's bound to be a better date. Yeah, yeah, true. Not that they could, not that they would have any reason to know what was going to come up with Ezra Miller, but sad. We could have um, seen Michael Keaton as Batman again two years ago. <laughs> I know. I was very jazzed for that. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I even, well, I make a passing reference to it um, in uh, some of the updated stuff in Batman psychology, just a passing reference um, in an end note referring to these movies that still hadn't, but we might never see. I don't know. We'll see them in some form. I mean, eventually, people even got access to Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, you know, and the yeah. Donner Cut of Superman. Eventually, we'll see them. But that's know. that's funny, yeah, because I was thinking about Fantastic Four yesterday when all the news broke. I was just like hoping some brave soul would do, you know, what the what some employee did with Fantastic Four. You've <laughs> seen was, Roger Corman's Fantastic Four? Yes. Yeah. It's hilarious. I, it is. Uh, it's funny because uh, my uncle had it on Betamax, and that's yeah. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> he was—he's an old Fantastic Four, you know, fan from you know years and years back. But yeah, I, I, I've seen that. It's, it's a good time. <laughs> um, you know, jumping back to the book, I want to go with the. I had one more question with the introduction before I jump into it, and I wanted to ask. You know, that in that. You know, introduction, you know, there was a note about you and Denny O'Neill having long discussions and a friendship. I wanted to ask, yeah. you know, how that developed and, you know, if there was or what input he had, you know, on the book. It's a weird thing. I honestly don't remember when I first met Denny. That is it's so weird now that I think about it. I just think 
it um, well, we had been communicate we had been communicating by email for a while before we finally met in person. Um, man, that is weird thinking about. It. I don't remember when I first met Denny. I guess it was because I, I knew him enough already. We talked on the phone and by email before we finally met in person, huh? But uh, no, it's um, and I love talking to Denny, and he, I mean, he was happy to share his experiences and wisdom and thoughts and 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 to complain about right wingers and um <laughs> and, 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 and talk about a lot of different things and i mean the last con- the last conversation i had with denny was particularly long and it was somewhere in the second hour that i found out why he was rambling more than usual uh when he referred to the use of medicinal marijuana it's like oh that explains this conversation yeah well after his wife died he was depressed um yeah well that's understandable uh but uh, you know he was a very good person and he some of the things that he seemed to like about me was the fact that i was bringing my knowledge and experience you know my background in psychology my treatment of, of things you know from scholarly isn't quite the right word that sounds a little more highfalutin uh but um of, of actual analysis and taking things not not completely seriously but 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 treating them with respect respectfully that's a better word than taking it seriously because we still have fun with batman but uh you're respecting the material and and looking at how it's meaningful for people in a different ways. And he also liked the, the fact that, uh, you know, I, I got involved with, uh, you know, helping the world find out more about Bill Finger. Uh, but I, Denny was a great person to talk to. And you, you, and you know, when you get to know somebody when they're older, you'll only know them for so long. Um, it could be a couple years. It could be 10, it could be 20. Uh, Michael Uslin's partner, Ben Melnicker, he lived to 105. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and and I saw a picture of him walking a granddaughter down the wedding aisle. Just not all, not all that long, you know, before that end came. Um, but Danny, Danny was a, a wonderful person. He 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 liked the kind of thing I was doing, and 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 liked to support it. So you know, we had. Uh, I mean, we would have conversations just to have conversations, but you know, we I had. Um, an interview with him for my Joker book, um, an interview with him for my Wonder Woman book. Uh, for, for for folks who know about his time on Wonder Woman, um, but and um, you know, and there were certain things he told me. If I ever did one on Justice League or just any other topic, he'd be happy to to help me with those as well. And we had a project we wanted to do together related to the Shadow, but that that didn't happen. But uh, when he did wrote the introduction for Batman and Psychology, it was before most of that. Now I had known him for a couple of years at that point, but that introduction it grew out. It, he and I were having a conversation in the hallway at New York Comic Con, and uh, we were just chatting. Michael was doing uh, his forward to the book, um, and uh, so I wasn't going to ask somebody else to also do one because you know Denny's introduction is essentially a second forward, uh, but it it just grew naturally out of the conversation that we were having there uh, at, uh, you know, New York comic-con and, and he was happy to do it. And I was very grateful uh, to him so much for, for contributing that to, to my first book. Nice. Yeah. It was, you know, 
I mean, obviously, <laughs> I have two questions on it, so it had a lasting impression with me, and that was before I even started the book. <laughs> but yeah, I gotta admit, it's 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 an honor and cool and fun, you know, ha- having you know on the cover of my book, you know, the the producer of the Batman movie, and the guy who wrote the first comic book. I remember reading. Do you remember which issue it was? Oh, it would have been some really early Batman. I mean, you asked me, you know, when I discovered comic books. We got a photo of <laughs> nine months old holding one of my mom's comics, looking delighted by it. But the earliest ones I remember were some Batman comics that my mom read to me. And, and I'd looked it up from, from when that would have been. It's like, oh, those would have been written by Denny. Um, the, I, I, I told Neil Adams once that his art inspired me to learn to read so I could understand why the stories looked so much darker than the Adam West show had led me to expect. And Neil said, a thousand people have told me that. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and we all, we, you know, we lost Neil not long ago. Yeah. We lost him this year. It's real sad. It's this year. It's kind of been brutal, you know, kind of across the board. So many creators that have just well, had such a so huge many, impact. So many creators became big at the time that would put them around the age where, yes, we're going to we're going to see a lot of losses, you know. And um, <laughs> Michael Euslin and I, when we're at, some reason we do this at New York Comic Con, I think it's because of the way their artist alley is laid out. Um, uh, more years than not, we'll get to thinking it's like. Okay, who are the oldest ones here? And it is because we say we want to seek them out. We want to say hi to them. And it's like you remember us talking one time, and he, you know, he, he wasn't sure if Nick Cardi was there. No, I had just talked to Nick Cardi. And then, like the last time we were talking about it, and it occurred to us that Marv Wolfman was the oldest one there. It's like, man, we don't think of Marv as being, uh, you know, Marv is Bronze Age. You know, we don't think of him. Yes, uh, so we're used to like some of the lingering folks from Golden or Silver Age. Although it's been, been a little while since somebody from the Golden Age was there now. Um, and uh, yeah, when the oldest one there was a Bronze Age writer. Hence, um, you know, the first edition of this book came out 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So how did it feel to, you know, revisit this book and update it? And, you know, what were some of the things that fueled the second edition? Now, now, how it felt, it felt like visiting an old friend. It really did. I've, I've worked on all these other books, but Batman is the one people talk to me about far more than anything else. It It, it, it is so special. To, it is something that's always, I mean, Batman's always been my hero. And uh, I, I put a lot of things into it. Some of the, To me, some of the most important things about psychology and human nature, we're talking about them, the Batman stories in there. Anybody reading that will see this, like, oh yeah, this guy loves Batman. <laughs> but um, it, it it did, and well, for the last ten years, you know, you know, things that have come up in the last ten years. You know, there are we've had Affleck, we've had um, you know Pattinson, we've had Gotham, you know, Titans. You know, not that not as many people are going to know about that, but there were were a couple little things worth mentioning from Titans uh, in there, and um, and there, it's not just those new stories and the things that have been happening in the comics. Uh, although more of them will come and go. I mean, Alfred died. It's been a few years now since Alfred died, yeah. and we all still know he'll come back. He'll get better. It, it's death. It's like a cold. Alfred was dead in the '60s when it wasn't even common to kill people off all the time, and then he came back to life as this 
purpley spotted guy, the outsider, you know, because he was going to be in the TV show. Uh, but uh, so, so, so there are some issues that have happened, you know, during that time. It's not just it's and some of it has to do with those news stories, but not just about the fact that there are news stories. People debate. They say well, one of the two new chapters is Batman's views on killing and weapons. Fans argue about that in ways that they weren't doing 10 years ago, largely because of the Affleck version. And 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 you've gone silent on me, so I have to just fill the gap. Sorry. Ask myself the questions. Oh, okay. No, there was a noise in the background. I had the <laughs> ah, I I didn't hear anything. But you know, it's a, fans got to debating the issues of whether Batman does kill, whether Batman should kill. Those are different questions. And to me, though, that's an argument that can never end. You know, so yes, you can find examples of stories from you know his four thousand adventures in eighty years, written by you know a thousand different people. Especially if you want to go pulling stuff from the first two years of the comic while they were figuring the character out before editor Whitney Ellsworth said Batman should not kill anybody, and Bill Finger said, you know, he was right. Batman should be good enough; he should never have to do that. <laughs> and of course, you can find examples. It goes into what's my mental Batman as opposed to yours. And so people can argue that, and, and nobody can exactly win. You know, the philosophical arguments. People argue the logical reasons why Batman should or should not kill. The book Batman and Philosophy, and in Batman and Ethics. Uh, but the book Batman and Philosophy uh, has this chapter by Mark White, in which he goes through different kinds of philosophical arguments, both for and against, specifically killing the Joker. To me, what's interesting are the psychological reasons because it's like those two those two things you know should does batman kill should batman kill people can argue forever uh to me what's interesting are the psychological reasons why wouldn't he and people on either side of the the should argument will take and consider that it's like why wouldn't someone you know they can have their feelings about it um you know, what what are, are or what psychological reasons would figure into a guy embarking on a crime fighting mission would would not kill and then it becomes important again with the pattinson story recently but a different way with this emphasis that he is not going to kill so i got a whole chapter on that and and then there's there's this other chapter on batman is inspiration i had to take out the humor chapter uh to make room for it um, although I, I salvaged a little bit of the first edition's humor chapter here, and I salvaged more of it in a chapter over in Joker. So it's more like it didn't disappear. It just kind of moved over into my Joker. Oh, book. Okay. Um, so I, I thought that's an obvious place you know, for, for me to use something somewhere else and, and take it out of here, because I want to talk about Batman as inspiration. The first half of the chapter is about him inspiring people within his world. Yeah, but let, let me bring in some characters that I didn't really have a logical place to say much about, uh, like Cassandra Kane and well, and then Duke Thomas, who you know, has been important in the past decade. That he in, that uh, you know, other characters in their world had been inspired by Batman, but the latter half I think is is the more important when we get into ways in which the fictional character inspires people in the real world, and you know why why a fictional character can inspire someone facing cancer, you know, to find strength as they're engaging in this fight. And there are a number of different people who Batman has been their example on this. 
you know, Daniel Scott, the, the one-legged dance, dance revolution champion who, you know, he's wearing symbols of Batman as he's in the competition. Um, the number of people who have told me, and it's not just Batman, but it's the, um, the, the number of people who have told me that specific fictional characters and stories help them break a chain of suicidal thinking, uh, of uh, suicidal ideation. Um, Paul Dini, who wrote for Batman the Anime Series, created Harley Quinn. Um, you know, he was was brutally injured when Mom. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> internet crashed. Um, we were talking about the internet crashed. Yes, we're it talking seems like about... no time passed at all. <laughs> um, so we're talking wow. about Batman as inspiration, um, and and you yeah. know how he inspires people to go through such you know challenges in life and and you know some some of their darkest days even you know we were talking about and just you know how it's yeah, and, and the power to inspire people can come from a lot of different places it can come from official characters we grow up learning from stories we learn values from stories when we're a kid we learn lessons you know from children's books teaching us yes things about counting and colors but also cooperating caring about other people also reasons to go the heck to sleep but you know we, we are inspired by stories from so early in our life we are inspired by characters who don't even exist we're inspired by people in our lives yes but we actually know the fictional characters better than we know most real people because they're fictional if something happens some new story comes up that's like oh that doesn't work at all it's like, you know, Bat- Batman shouldn't be doing that. Okay, in, in real life, if your hero, like your grandpa, turns out to have been, you know, secretly um, a drug addict. I'm not saying your grandpa was. I'm saying if your grandpa turns out to have been secretly a drug addict, that colors everything you've ever had to think about that grandpa. If somebody does that with a superhero in a story, that does not necessarily necessarily change everything you've ever thought it'd be it's like nope my my hero is the one who was in the stories before that you know it, it, it is not what redefines there's some characters who get redefined by something like that like green arrow sidekick speedy that's going to come up forever regarding him it makes him more interesting than he used to be but it didn't keep coming up with harry osborne you know in the comics it was a specific story and did not come up over and over but you, somebody has a story in which Batman does something heinous. You can be, well, screw that writer. That's not my Batman. You can't go, screw that news reporter. That's not my Lance Armstrong when Armstrong gets caught doping. True. So the fictional characters can stay with it. They have a resilience that real people don't necessarily have. And there's a purity to the story and, and the point and the value, you know, um, it's been pointed out, it's like you know, Mark Twain and others have said, fiction has to make sense. You know, it's got to get to the point and have truth you know, more immediately than a lot of real things do. The, the character, why Batman inspires, a lot of different reasons why that particular character. Some of it is because he's the superhero with no superpowers. He is this guy who decided, I shall become a bat. He decided, I I will do things i will help people i will keep others from going through what my family went through he takes his pain and channels it into something constructive something useful you know when in real life if 
you're walking through the worst part of town and you're kind of nervous about the people around there. You like you you stepped into oh the scary looking biker bar. <laughs> Your best hope may be not that a Boy Scout comes in to help you, but that one of the other bikers tells others lay off of him, leave him alone. It's like you sometimes it takes the person who has the darkness to make us feel safest in the most dangerous places. Diving, you know, diving into Batman's you know, psyche specifically, I noticed in chapter four, you know, you have a great section about, you know, his identity. That's the trauma chapter. That's the trauma chapter. Yeah. And, you know, which is, is the, that true the trauma mass chapter or the mass chapter? I believe okay, that's that, the mass chapter. Okay. The mass chapter. Yeah. And so, you know, you go through, you okay. talk about like how, you know, Bruce and Batman and some are both, you know, masks and, you know, there's de individuation and mm-hmm. disinnovation that play, play in there. Um, but the point I'm getting at is, you know, near the end is when you cue readers in that, you know, Batcave Bruce, you know, the one talking freely beneath Wayne Matter is his truest self. And I wanted to ask, you know, how did you, you know, what was kind of the thought process that led you to that realization? Well, that's one of those where, I mean, this book comes out of, you know, something I've been thinking about my whole life and, and looking at the storytelling. In, in some ways, it may harken partly back to the way John Byrne turned Superman into this three-part character that he really had not been before Crisis on Infinite Earths. Just by giving him by him living parents. And it had always been that the Kents were dead, but Byrne made it that the Kents were alive, and suddenly we had to have this third side to Superman. There's the public Superman, and then there's the Clark Kent act, but then he could also be himself around John and Martha Kent. And, and we got to see this this fleshed out three part character, and with Batman we have these debates over and over who's the real character Batman and Bruce Wayne and different people take different perspectives. Uh, to some it seems like well it's obvious Batman it's, uh, his self he thinks of himself that way. You know you, you put have him hold the lasso of truth asking who he is he says I'm Batman he doesn't say I'm Bruce Wayne, and. I saw somebody disagreeing with that the other day. That the other day, they thought that was terrible writing. It's like, well, no, he's not just Batman, but he thinks of himself that way. But there is this Bruce Wayne act. We we see that obviously, but there's also a Batman act. You know, when he says Batman can't show that he's injured, Batman has to be larger than life. I mean, he puts in this extra scary aspect to Batman to intimidate people. That stuff's an act too. So there is a public Batman as well. We, we probably see him truest when he's down in the Batcave, the mask back, uh, probably with a cup of coffee, talking to Alfred and maybe the kid, though um, he's, he's, he's less guarded when it's just one. Uh, Kevin Conroy uh, and I were talking about this one time, and, and his feeling is that Batman's truest to himself when he's alone, when there's nobody to have any kind of act for. And... Now, that may be totally true, but we're not seeing any kind of interaction to do anything with that. And yeah. So you know, we, we, we see him when he's, you know, down there in the cave at the computer, um, free from the different kinds of pretense. On the flip side, I found it interesting, you know, that you, um, when we, we, we go into talk or when you go into talking about the Joker, you divided him into five distinct beings you know, and I found that extra interesting, especially that's period five periods in his history, and and Grant Morrison puts out they can be broken down further too, but there are five main periods in his history. Yeah, 
Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's okay. That's a good way to put it. Um, I guess the I guess the names like the but the names I give to each of those periods do reflect an aspect of himself as a person. You know, they're not just names for periods of time. It's you know, agent of chaos. Um, you know, the, the king of Arkham Asylum, uh, the the clown prince of crime. So yeah, each each, each of those five. You know, I, I, I name for um, the different aspects of him as a person. That's true. And then you have, you know, I was I was going to lead into you have a whole separate book on the Joker. You did mention it earlier, um, you know. And is is there anything you can tell us a little bit about, you know, the Joker book? You know, that kind of separates it from the Batman book. I know you said he moved some chapters, and obviously it's more Joker focused, but. Yeah, and that one, I wrote about two-thirds of the book. I have other people uh, contributing chapters to that one as well. Other psychologists, um, especially the last chapter, um, we've, I've got a, a dozen different people weighing in, talking about different kinds of therapy. You know, it's like, would this type of therapy help the Joker? No. With that one? No. With that one? No, that would make him worse. Um, it's actually shown that group therapy can make psychopaths worse because some of them will pick up on it's like oh this is what they want to hear me say more easily in group therapy than other settings and then the latter part of that chapter we go into well what about harley you know when we when she's in a state and ready to grow and so forth and we would go through it's like well yeah some of these uh, could work with her yeah for a long time people had kept asking more than anything else um if i would do a book on the joker if, if there's there are always there are always people asking would you ever do a book on such and such would you ever do a book on such and such and Often they name things that, oh, yeah, those are on the list of things I'm eventually going to do. Like this year, the two people have been asking me about more than anything else are Stranger Things and Spider-Man. I saw and, Stranger well, Things Stranger one Thing. forthcoming, right? Yeah, Stranger Things Psychology, Life Upside Down comes out in February. And if I'm doing the Spider-Man book, it comes out in May. Got a yeah, loaded yeah, schedule there. That's a lot of writing. That. Well, I, I'm not. I'm not writing them all. Um, it's with Stranger Things, I only wrote, I co-authored one chapter and then I wrote uh, my introductions with spider-man i'm writing a lot in that one so with, with stranger things my role is far, far more uh gathering the different people hurt hurting the nerds uh, and working with them to develop ideas and see how they fit together sometimes it involves helping some figure out their ideas helping them write it in a way that works for the general audience because i want these things yeah it would be great for someone to be used in a classroom but that is absolutely not close to the forefront of my thoughts you know pressing other scholars that's that's you know i'm we are using these to to have fun talking about these characters and to teach psychology of real human nature to the world and and to me that's more important than than impressing somebody on my cv which is really long anyway um <laughs> so the well well i mean i, I include everything like including all my uh psychology today blog pieces because i need to keep track of them somewhere um but uh with the joker you um people asked about that so much because the batman book and for a while i resisted because something was missing uh, obviously we can fill a book on the psychology of the joker but it's so speculative because we don't know for sure what goes on inside his head and for storytelling purposes that's best it's great that we don't know for sure what his definite background is. You know, in The Dark Knight, the first time he tells his background, 
okay, it's interesting, but I'm kind of disappointed they're giving him a real background. But then they t- he t- when he tells that second lie that is completely incompatible with the first one, it's like, oh, okay, we're taking the Alan Moore approach. Uh, sometimes I remember my past one way, sometimes I have another. If I have to have a past, I prefer it to be multiple choice. And it's okay, because we, we do not know so many things about him, and that's what makes him the greatest challenge for Batman he's the hardest for Batman to predict to know even know which aspect of the Joker he's dealing with this time but then um, I was having lunch with um, my, my acquisition editor and the publicist at the publisher and uh, the publicist said well what do you make about the Joker and Harley because I was telling her about my, my reluctance on the book I was like well yeah we do know a lot about what goes on in Harley's head it's still mainly about the Joker uh, and, and, we were, and while we were at lunch, I said the subtitle would have to make it clear that it was about. And that's the fastest a subtitle has ever come to me. The subtitle in the Joker psychology is "Evil Clowns and the Women Who Love Them." So, <laughs> yeah, so the title makes it clear it's mainly about the Joker. The subtitle says Harley's in there too, and yeah, it's it's longer than it, there's more there's more content in that book than there is in Batman. Wow. Uh, <laughs> well, so I wrote about two thirds of the book. But it, it's enough. There's enough additional material to it. It's equipped for me. It was equivalent of about ninety percent of what I wrote for Batman and Psychology. So, so I wrote a book's worth. But then I have this, these things from other people because I thought it was important to bring in clinicians, people with different perspectives, forensic psychologists. You know, when we're doing the psychology of the criminal, and you know, the the time I spent looking at some of the things on the psychology of the world's worst criminals to get a feel for what fits to the Joker. After we were done with that one, I had to take a break. I had a, a six month break. You know, after at that point, five years of continuously putting out these books with other people. Um, there had been a two year break after Batman, and then I, I had to have that break. And then thanks to lockdown. Um, and messing up the publishing industry and everything else, that six-month break became a two-year break. Um, and, then, and then I did the second edition of Batman and Psychology. Now we're going with the anthologies again. Awesome. Um, you know, there's one chapter where you talk about you know, Carl Jung and Shadow Selves, and you delve into this idea of anima and animus. Um, you know, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Okay. So Carl Jung was a, a psychiatrist who was one of the early ones getting involved with Freud and, and his psychodynamic movement. And, you know, he and Freud correspond were very close for four or five years. Then they had a big falling out as Freud did with a whole lot of the people around him. But Jung, one thing he was interested in, uh, aside, aside from, you know, Freud's look at how life experiences played a role in the unconscious part of your mind, Jung looked at some things universal throughout humankind. He studied myths and stories throughout the world and found that certain themes emerge everywhere. The concept of a hero emerges in every culture, no matter how far apart they are on the planet, you know, how far they were removed through history and so forth. There are certain concepts that emerge everywhere. There's something natural about them. He felt there's something deep in the inherited unconscious mind, regardless of, of why these themes emerge. They do emerge. And the shadow that you're talking about is uh, an archetypal, you know, an inherited in, the, in the, the collective unconscious as Jung saw it, uh, this archetypal sense of our own dark side. 
it's we often think of it as our evil part and in many stories that is it someone has to confront their own darkest aspects before they can move on you know luke skywalker has to have the hallucinatory fight you know on um, on the swamp planet you know with uh, an imaginary darth vader and then see his own head in the helmet you know he has this as part of him confronting his own shadow self or representative of that um was george lucas he was deliberately pulling in jungian ideas and joseph campbell's ideas and ever since george lucas a lot of others have deliberately done these things that jung and campbell had said had developed naturally without people deliberately following the model that campbell in particular outlined with the hero's journey with that shadow jung felt that part of growing as a person involves confronting different aspects of yourself getting taking a look at your own persona your public face your public mask and, and looking getting looking at that as such and thinking about why we have different ways in public you're going deeper in yourself with the anima and animus and then even deeper into look confronting that shadow with batman we've got somebody who has already gone through this this hero's journey he's gone through this confrontation with his own dark side to find a way to work with it to make himself stronger and to do good for other things to take his anger to take his own worst qualities and channel them into something good out in the world you know, he does not think of himself as a good person you know there's this this wonderful line from the the hush uh, storyline in which and it's narrative because they don't do thought bubbles most of the time, but it's just narrative. Him thinking about how, you know, Clark, Superman, is able to, has the ability to incinerate you from a thousand miles away, but he won't because deep at heart, Clark is a good person. And then he adds, adds this thought, and deep at heart, I'm not. You know, he doesn't think of himself as a good person. Uh, but he's taking these things and, and using them to, yes, take out his anger on criminals. Every thug he slugs is a pitiful substitute for the one who killed his parents. But the first part of the mission, and most writers seem to get this, is to keep other people from going through what he went through. If he has to choose between saving a person and getting that criminal, you know he's going to save that person. He'll try to do both, but you know he's going to go save that person. The Punisher, you're not so sure if he's going to go save that person or not. He's focused on getting that criminal. For the Punisher, the punishment is, the attack on the criminal is the first mission. For Batman, that's not it, despite how he thinks of himself. But he's taking his worst qualities and putting them to work so he's he's working with his own shadow self so he is a shadow character he is a shadow figure which automatically gives him this complexity that so many of the other superheroes don't have and because he is psychologically complex he is defined by his psychology and its enemies all have to be too true no and that's that's an interesting point too you know comparing him and contrasting him with you know other heroes and kind of I think feeds into, you know, what you were saying earlier about Batman as a figurehead that, you know, we're all attracted to, you know, as people, as fans and, you know, readers and obviously moviegoers. But, <laughs> um, you know, I noticed too, in the same chapter, you know, you position uh, Catwoman as his anima, you know, and so that leads me to the question, are you a fan mm-hmm. of Batman and Catwoman together or is there another relationship between or 
with Batman that you prefer. As well, as as my why the cat chapter uh, makes clear, um, I, Catwoman is his love story, uh, as she is. The 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 others that they've tried over the years, there are problems. The person who is another superhero, you know, when he doesn't think of himself as a good person, he doesn't feel completely comfortable with the person he thinks of as a good person. But then, you know, there, there was a story, Mike Gold pointed this out. There's a story in the 70s where Batman stops and thinks at one point, wondering what it says about himself, wondering why his main interests are in these bad girls he ought to lock up. So we're talking specifically Selena and Talia. And, 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 and Batman didn't have an answer. But, but story-wise, it also works because that line of law keeps them apart, keeps it where they can always be they can be these these lovers forever separated by something you know without having to it's like okay well they did it they they hooked up they got married now what you know which eventually you know a deal with mephisto to save aunt may will undo for spider-man new 52 undoes for superman although later they're married again it's uh, yeah, there are stories to tell, but it's a different kind of story, and the story of a relationship, the story of a, a marriage, can work very well for plenty of these heroes. You know, the elongated man got married in his second story, and he's most associated with his relationship with with Sue. But Batman, he has to be this guy who goes back and forth between working with these others. No, I'm a loner. You know that Lego Batman movie is one of the best character analyses ever, but and he he there are times when he he isolates himself from everybody, and you can't do that very well with a wife in your household. It's uh, that that's not going to make for a successful relationship, and so with that line of law keeping him and the bad girls apart, but they can't they can't be too bad, you know. Say so if they if they're murderers, it's like well that's not what he can maintain an ongoing relationship it's like oh i'll let her get away because i like her it's like she killed people it's like okay selena's not murdering people so i mean her first couple of appearances each of her first couple of appearances back in the 40s um he accidentally lets her escape at the end of the story it's like oops you know the second one is like robin is like right you accidentally let her go and uh, so he, he was always interested. It was always there throughout their entire history. And there are times, I mean, she disappeared from the comics for a decade because she didn't fit what the Comics Code Authority wanted. And there are times when other writers were struggling to figure out what to do with her. They really had a rhythm in the 90s onward when they reached this anti hero approach with her. That, that uh, she can be a little better sometimes, a little worse sometimes, but they, they, they really hit the, the right rhythm with her. She is what appeals to batman while having this thing that will always keep them apart i saw the other day where somebody had tweeted that uh, they they used to they used to think talia was the one he ought to be with until they read uh batman and psychology by travis langley and then the guy said and now i'm a, I'm, I'm a catwoman believer nice i've always been team you know catwoman but the book helps solidify that you know <laughs> why i'm on that line you know, and also I, you know, you know, one of my favorite films is Batman Returns and, you know, Michelle Pfeiffer really killed it as Catwoman and 
kind of turned me on to the character. In, in terms of her background, she's this secretary. She's not the one who's always been a criminal. But Michelle Pfeiffer, she's so darn good in that movie. And we've not had a truly terrible Catwoman. We've definitely no, had some. We are, we've had some who are better than others. Yeah, but we've we've uh, and it also depends on the story they're telling. You know, it's like Michelle Pfeiffer was fantastic in that particular version. And, and Zoe Kravitz, she really fit what they were doing with her in the Batman. Because Adam West, he had, he had multiple cat women. He had three yeah. different cat women. Um, yeah, I think just, yeah, what makes it apart is, you know, you mentioned the secretary. It's just, we can all relate to having, you know, feeling like, you know, the world sometimes is just like crapping on us. You know, rough day at the office. You come home, you have some angry voicemails from your mom or, you know, and a soon to be ex, you know. <laughs> and, and, and each each version of Selena's background, you know, the, the, the secretary in Gotham or um, the kid who grew up poor and orphan in, in Gotham that we know in Batman Returns, Selena had a mom because she was leaving a message for her mom and talking to her on the phone. But, you know, normally Selena is an orphan. You grew up on the, on the bad side of Gotham. Either way, it, it's some different aspect of life in Gotham in, that contrasts with Bruce Wayne's life, as opposed to this daughter of an international terrorist who she's not inherently part of Gotham. Selena is inherently part of Gotham, and that makes her another contrast to Bruce Wayne himself, something that both unites them and divides them, even in their relationship to the city. True. Um, I have a heavy philosophical question for you. Maybe. We'll see. Oh, well, that, that's for Mark White. He does Batman and philosophy. Okay. <laughs> what, what are we, what are we, what so are we trying? Earlier, you know, we were talking about, you know, you know, the audience and, you know, what attracts people to this character and everything. And mm-hmm. that was one of my later questions in my list, but I had a follow-up to that, you know, in the sense of, you know, we're kind of now, we're now in the era of, you know, the MCU, you know, superhero movies are huge and booming. Do you think in the era now, these things are doing so well because we're collectively searching for something? We're always searching for something, you know, in when, when Superman first appears on the scene in 1938, people were, looking for heroes that could save them from problems that seemed like they had no easy solution. You know, when gangsters seemed to have been winning throughout the 20s and 30s and the world was heading to war, we had such complicated things. You know, we wanted somebody to step up and do the right thing, but you couldn't see who could possibly do these things. And here emerges Superman with the powers that let him do this. Batman with the resources that he has. Although we also know, you take all the sources away, plant them in the middle of nowhere. He's still Batman. I had said that for years before the Dark Knight Rises, and then Nolan did it. And he, he, he took away the money, planted him out in the middle of nowhere, and he still emerges as Batman. Who cares how he got back to Gotham after that? He's Batman. He figured it out. Um, <laughs> Shipping crate. I don't know. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, the, the, these heroes, these stories that we're drawn to, they fit. They appeal to different things we we're seeking at different times. We see some definite changes in superhero stories post nine eleven. The, the whole MCU 
has has a has definitely has a post 9-11 influence on the kinds of stories. We want heroes with greater depth so we can believe them. You know, we know we have to see more humanity. You know, not just somebody step up and I have the ability to do the right thing and this is what we're going to do. You need somebody who we need to know that some of them have some conflicts about it. That they're they're doing the right thing because they're human. They're doing the right thing even though it's hard. You know, doing the right thing, even though some things scare them and that they have uh, worries. So we, we need this greater complexity in humanity for us to be able to believe our heroes in this age of communication. There's so many different things that are shaping why we want stories the way we are. Why now every superhero has a tragic backstory that used to not be the case. You know, they uh, they did not all have these. It starts getting inserted. It used to be Flash was the, the only member of the Justice League who had both of his parents alive during his adulthood until Flashpoint in the New 52. Uh, but people are so used to it through the Flash TV show, they just take it for granted that it's always been that his mom was murdered and his dad was, you know, locked up for it it's like no barry allen did the right thing because he was the kind of person who was ready to do the right thing you know he didn't have this tragic backstory you know how jordan didn't have his dad die in a plane explosion right in front of him until jeff johns inserted it that was actually before the new right a little before the new 52 um but, but those things had not been in their backstory we want we want greater complexity. We want to. We want to see the hero's pain. Maybe because we're sadistic, or maybe because <laughs> we we want to know that it means something to the hero when they do these things. You know, they're they're not doing it for the glory. They're doing it because it's the right thing to do. They're doing it even though it's hard and hurts them. It's a good way to frame it, you know, the meaning and everything. So, though, I do still like, you know, the uh, non-painful, boring sides of heroes where, you know, maybe their parents don't die. Or, you know, I'm one of those people, I'm not big on the CW, but I do like Superman and Lois. And I like the idea that there's this family drama in the background going on, you know, and it's just kind of the everyday boring stuff. And so Superman's, you know, being Superman, but he's also like being a dad. So. (laughs) Well, I referred to John Byrne's uh, reboot of Superman in the 80s. You know, he took out one of the more tragic elements when he gave uh, the Kents back to him. Because, and Superman, even though he's, he was from a doomed planet, he doesn't know it till he's older in almost every version of the story. Now, I know in the 70s, you know, he, he could remember everything, even but he had super memory, so he could remember all of it. But no, it was generally... You know, the first time when he uh, first finds out about kryptonite, about Krypton in the old comics, and when he's is when he's trying to track down the origin of kryptonite. You know, he's an adult and already Superman before he finds out where he comes from. Usually, since John Byrne's time, it has been that it's in his teens. You know, when uh, you know John shows him the ship and. He finds out he's an alien, and he still doesn't know the details of it. So there's this mystery about it, but not this pain to it. You know, if you are an adult, and before you find out the tragic background, you know, that you came from, you know, it's like, it's like a history lesson. It, it, it's, 
it it can be painful finding out it was like they're all gone there is no hope of ever meeting any of them or anything like that but that's it's not the kind of trauma that you remember the event itself the person who is fleeing from the nazis and has that personal account it it affects them in a way that it cannot affect the child who simply knows that it happened to him, you know, still affect that kid and be something that's in there in the life, but it's not the same experience at all. It's not the personal trauma. You know, Superman did not have the personal trauma of Krypton exploding. He found out about a lot later. Batman sees his parents murdered before his eyes, you know, six months into the run of the character, Bob and Bill, you know, brainstorm about what motivates this guy. And they decided there's probably nothing more traumatic than that. And Spider-Man is honestly the next big twist on that. You know, when Stan and Steve, you know, have it where he's got this guilt, you know, about Uncle Ben getting killed, but, you know, because he didn't stop the burglar himself, you know, that really is the next big twist in in the superhero tragedies. Yeah, no, I I loved that too with Spider-Man. The idea that, you know, it was kind of, you know, doing things for selfish reasons at first. And then, you know, he gets this drastic life event that you know changes i love I, I just i think that kind of speaks to the power of why that character is so popular too is there's that lasting you know eh, blaming oneself you know in a different way than yes. like you know batman would you know as a kid when he goes through sometimes his memories or however he's being written in his when they retell his origins yeah with uh with spider-man it is a contrast to batman so we're still on batman but with spider-man he starts off like if you suddenly get superpowers your first thought would not be hey i'm gonna go take this and fight some crime <laughs> much earlier would be Ooh, how can I pay my bills with this? If you suddenly had telekinesis, like if I suddenly if I suddenly had the ability to make things move one inch, I know what I would be doing with that superpower. I'd be at a casino moving a ball on a roulette wheel. I'd do some research, make sure it's a crooked casino that deserves it. But that's just, that is not about justice. That is about making sure I don't feel guilty about what I'm doing. That's, <laughs> I think that's the more common thing. Him taking those powers and using it to try to help himself have a better life is a very normal human reaction. I was just proofreading yesterday a, a draft um, by, by an, uh, someone contributing to the Spider-Man book and where he's talking, that, that's exactly what he's talking about for that chapter is, is the fact that Pete did not start off choosing to be a crime fighter and the very normal human motivation that was involved in what he was doing. Um, whereas Batman decides I shall turn myself into a larger than life figure. Superman and Bat Superman and Spider-Man, they get powers. They did not do anything to make themselves get the powers. They had the super already and they decided what to do with it. Superman, because he's raised by the best parents on earth. We know from alternate world stories, if he's raised by a bad guy, he's going to be a bad guy. He's going to embody the whatever ideals his parents trained them because he's a good boy, even in a bad world. Whereas, you know, Spider-Man, it's a little later before he decides, uh, you know, to do the right thing. With, with Batman, it's the other way around. He has decided I'm going to embark on this mission to fight crime. 
and I will turn myself into somebody who can do that. So we are have been running way over time, but yeah. I have. Oh, this is long overdue. Honestly, I'm kind of surprised we hadn't done this before. Yeah, there we were. Well, you brought it up before, but I say so often I have conflicts. Yeah, no. Originally, you know, we just started. Like I just started taking these on uh, not not too long ago. Yeah. So the the interviews, but yeah, it has been long overdue. Yeah. Um, my last question before yeah. you know I wrap things up. You know, you have a very busy schedule, but do you still find time to read comics? And if so, what's on your pull list? Um, I don't live anywhere near a comic shop, so I don't have a pull list. I have some things I subscribe to. Uh, I subscribe to Batman. Um, harley quinn catwoman is still batman related comics some some others that uh it's like keep it up with spider-man when squirrel girl has a series i'm usually reading that i love squirrel girl the greatest strategist in the marvel universe is squirrel girl you know dcu has batman the mcu her superpower even beyond her ability to communicate with squirrels is her ability to strategize i, I love squirrel girl um, that, that's a fun one yeah. harley the stories can be very fun they can be very dark and, and, and rambly and it just depends on the writer uh, writers she's got it's it's not just the 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 anti-hero thing of catwoman harley has been much more villainous at times and there's this greater uncertainty of her own identity and and so the the, the writers vary a lot more in what they do with her character um, these are some of the ones i love i i love um oh the one there uh, batman urban legends when those come in i love the the mix of stories that they have in those and um I've been the the Rob. I keep giving you Batman related stuff, and that is a lot of what I read in the comics these days. Um, well, we have a whole cycle of and I love reading old stuff. Well, I've, I've got the the Marvel Online subscription, so I'll read a lot of older things through them. That's um, I want to read the new Jessica Jones stuff. I love, I've been and I've been a fan of Jessica Jones since Alias Number One. You know, I I got her comic long before there was a Netflix show to make the rest of the world find out about her. You know, I've always enjoyed the Jessica Jones stories. My, I've read Pulse, and I really enjoyed Pulse. My wife is actually a huge Jessica Jones fan. We have all the books. I just yeah. have been lazy in reading them, other than outside of Pulse. So, but and, and um, Pulse and Pulse is at a point where she's gone through the foundational stuff. She's at a more stable point in her life in Pulse. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's none of the real purple man stuff or anything like that. Yeah. But, um, you know, with that said, I want to thank you for your time. You know, sure. I'm glad that we got together. Finally, we had a chance to chat. You know, it was an absolute pleasure and you are a wealth of knowledge. Um, you know, I encourage you know, fans of Batman and comics to pick up a copy of Batman and Psychology, A Dark and Stormy Night. Uh, the link can be found below, so it's right there. And that concludes the interview with Travis Langley. Hopefully you guys really enjoyed uh, the work that Scott put into that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the book, Batman and Psychology, A Dark and Stormy Night, second edition, is available now. We'll have a link to the book uh, over on Amazon in the description below, so you can take a look at that, whether you're listening to this on YouTube or on the website, there will be links in the description below. In addition to that, we are hoping to have Travis back on in a future episode um, to talk more about not only this book, but also the Joker 
book that he released back in 2019. Um, there's been a lot of talk about that in the interview itself. He's he's talked about how he's going to be doing some. He's always working on some other books as well. He's got one coming up for Stranger Things as well as Spider Man. Um, so obviously those are outside the realm of the Batman universe, but uh, keep. Keep if you're interested in psychology and pop culture, definitely keep an eye on what Travis Langley has got coming through the uh, through the pipeline because he's always got new stuff coming. Outside of that, uh, I want to just remind you if we do have him on on a future episode and you've got questions that you like answered or you have specific topics you'd like us to discuss with him, be sure to leave those in the comment section below. And if and when we have him on the show again in the future, we will try to get those questions answered. Outside of that, that is everything for this episode. I want to encourage you to head over to our website, thebatmanuniverse.net, for all kinds of news, original content, and other podcasts related to the entire Batman universe, as well as the movies, television, video games, comics, merchandise, and everything else that falls within the Bat fandom. In addition to that, you can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We have Discord. We're on YouTube. Wherever you are wherever you are interested in following us, there are social links at the top of our website, thebatmiverse.net, for you to find and connect with us. In addition to that, if you are interested in getting in touch with us, whether it be for comments or suggestions for future episodes or anything at all, you can get in touch with us at tbu at thebatmiverse.net. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, we do have a Patreon. Uh, be sure to check out the website for a link. We also have a number of other ways you can support us, including using our affiliate links uh, when shopping at a, a vari- wide variety of major retailers. You can find all of those on the support TBU link on the homepage. Again, thank you so much to Travis Langley for coming on to the show. Thank you again to Scott for pro- pro- for producing the entire interview. And uh, thank you all for taking a listen. For the Batman Universe Podcast, I am Dustin, and we will see you guys next time. <laughs>